I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with historian and writer Dr. Keisha Blaine. Dr. Blaine is the author of the prize-winning book, Set the World on Fire. She was also co-editor of the New York Times bestseller, 400 Souls, along with Ibram Kendi. Dr. Blaine joins me to discuss her latest book titled, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. The book is a biographical exploration of civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. And before Hamer joined the civil rights movement, she and her family struggled in poverty as sharecroppers in Mississippi. But once Hamer found her calling as a voting rights and civil rights activist, there was really no stopping her. This book, Until I Am Free, is a moving and inspiring read, and I think that everyone should familiarize themselves with the life and work of Fannie Lou Hamer. She was one of the movement's most ardent and important leaders. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation with historian and author, Dr. Keisha Blaine. Dr. Keisha Blaine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I want to thank you so much for writing this book. It's just such a good read. And you yourself said that you didn't learn much about her until your senior year in college and you were taking the civil rights course. And during that course, you know, I guess the professor assigned speeches to read and some of her writings to read. Was there something in particular that stopped you in your tracks that said, wow, you know, who is this person? I have to know more about her. One of the things that really stopped me in my track uh, when I first read Hamer's words was what I think can best be described as her radical honesty. She did not mince words. She was very clear about what she believed. She did not subscribe to respectability politics. She simply told you exactly what she wanted to say in the way that was authentic and powerful. That to me simply um, stood out to me because it was unlike many other historical figures who I had encountered, even taking that particular class on the civil rights movement. So Hamer just stood out to me because of her radical honesty. Uh, That's the best way to describe it. No, you're absolutely right. She did not mince words. You include a lot of quotes in the book, a lot of her quotes, and nearly every one of them is profound. I mean, she was truly ahead of her time. The thing that I think surprised me was that I was not aware that this journey for her started when she was 44 years old, like 44 years old, living you know, four and a half decades on this earth, and then becoming a civil rights activist, and then having the impact that she did. So can you tell me how she came to join the movement at 44 years old? Yes, this part of Hamer's story is so powerful. And I think so many people will be inspired by it because this is someone who simply, uh, you know, she grew up in poverty. This is someone who had very limited formal education, about a sixth grade education. She grew up um, in a sharecropping family. And that's all that she knew, working on the plantation from sunup to sundown, constantly helping uh, white landowners gain wealth and watching her family grow uh, just deeper and deeper into debt. Uh, And so uh, she came to the movement, uh, as you pointed out, at the age of 44 in August 1962, she attended a mass meeting at a local church that had been organized by activists uh, in the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. And uh, this was a group of activists who came to Mississippi. They organized primarily uh, in the South during this period. They were focused on voter registration. They were focused on making sure that Black people 
uh, understood that they had the right to vote as citizens of the United States, and they worked to ensure that they would be registered to vote in the hopes of bringing about some radical changes, ultimately in the hopes of dismantling Jim Crow as an institution. And so Hamer attended this service in August 1962, was deeply moved by what she heard According to Hamer, it was the first time that she learned that she had a constitutional right to vote as a citizen of the United States. That was transformative for her, and it set her on a path to become a civil rights activist, a human rights activist. Very quickly, she joined SNCC, and really the rest is history. I think most people learn about Hamer in the context of 64 and the powerful speech that she gave at the DNC. But August 1962 is when everything started for her. Right. And, you know, I tried to put this when I read this, I tried to put this in historical context. This is 1962, like not 1922, like 1962, but it is Mississippi. And I was trying to think, you know, historically what was happening in the rest of the country, such a, you know, divide between what was happening in some parts of the country and what she was living. And I found found it really remarkable that she did not know until 1962 that she had a right to vote. And I just think that's just so incredible. It is. I think um, oftentimes when we talk about 20th century African-American history, we do focus a lot on the North. And of course, if you do that, if you focus on, for example, Harlem, then the narrative is often about how people leave the South and how they migrate North. So so this is the, the great migration story. Hamer's story uh, is important because, of course, many people left the South. We know this. But many people stayed. Um, Hamer's family stayed. Her relatives remained in the South. And her story is important because it helps us, I think, understand certainly the stark divide, but also I think the important parallels, because we know that even those who left the South and migrated North encountered racism and discrimination, you know, very similar to what Hamer encountered. But in the Southern context, Black people were completely blocked from uh, utilizing their constitutional right uh, to vote. They were being blocked from the ballot box and they were being blocked through an array of methods, uh, legal methods, certainly, and extra legal methods, and particularly violence and intimidation. Uh, So her story, I think, uh, is important for people to understand what activists were facing in the 1960s. It, It was Shocking when you look at, for example, how many Black people were registered to vote. As I explained in the book, a very small percentage of Black people were registered to vote uh, in, in in Mississippi when they should have been able to cast a ballot and to have a say when it came to uh, to policies, certainly local policies, statewide policies. And that's that's not what happened. Uh, white supremacists worked really, really hard to keep Black people out of the ballot, ballot box, and and they worked really hard to, you know, ensure that they would not have equal access to uh, education, that they would not have quality health care, and so on. This is what the Jim Crow South certainly looked like in this moment. But I think that's a part of what made her activism so powerful when she joined the national movement, because she was coming from, you know, a part of life, Black life, that wasn't seen on the national stage in in terms of activism, right? I think that her joining that movement, obviously, she brought it onto the national stage, but it made her a really powerful activist. It did. You know, one of the things that really connected with me as I wrote the book and I did research for the book is how much Hamer connected to ordinary people. She would meet someone and in just a a matter of seconds, really connect to that person. And they would 
feel her love, certainly. Um, they would feel her passion, but most of all, they could relate to her. It, it was not a situation where she was coming into a community talking about civil rights, talking about Black political rights, and not knowing what people were going through. And this is not to throw shade uh, to to other activists who uh, engage in this, you know, what we talk about um, as a mobilizing tradition whereby they would come in, you know, they would have these grand scale events and, and they would rally people at particular moments. You certainly needed that kind of activism, but but Hamer is important for understanding uh, what we talk about as the organizing tradition. You know, this slow process of political organizing where you get to know people, you build relationships, you nurture people, uh, you connect with people, and it's a long-term process. And I think that is what she was really good at. She was good at just bringing people together in the community, building relationships, connecting with individuals. And because of her painful experiences, she could relate immediately to the, the folks that she encountered. So it wasn't this, like, I'm coming into a community that I'm foreign to. It was, no, I'm working among the people who I deeply understand. And that made her work, I think, particularly impactful. Right. But once she joined the movement, she was full speed ahead. Right. You know, once she had that kind of revelatory moment of the power that she held as a constituent who could vote, you know, she just took off. And there was one quote that really sticks with me. She said something like, hands that pick cotton now pick public officials. That was just so meaningful to her. And I, I want you to talk a bit about what happened to her once she got deeply involved in activism, because it was really, really, really hard. And I think that's what makes her story so extraordinary. She was beaten. She was thrown in jail. And just just give me an idea or give us an idea of some of the things that she went through. She endured a lot. And, you know, as you point out, once she joined the movement uh, in 62, she jumped all in 100%, never hesitated. She decided immediately that she wanted to help register local residents to vote. And certainly she wanted to attempt uh, to register to vote herself. That decision led to reprisals. One of the first things that she endured was essentially losing the position you know, that she had. Uh, as I mentioned, she was working as a, as a sharecropper, uh, so already didn't have much but the minute that she joined SNCC and decided that she was going to be part of this effort to expand Black political rights, the white landowner made it clear to her, you need to withdraw your registration or leave. That's what he said to her when she returned. And she said, no, I'm, I'm not going to uh, withdraw my registration because I didn't do this for you. I did this for me. And so that was the first act of defiance. Uh, and it was a bold act that really, I think, helps us see uh, the power of Hamer as an individual, but you know, it cost her. It cost her financially, certainly. It cost her family. When she walked away, then it was, it, you know, before long, her husband uh, ended up uh, losing the position too. And over the course of her life, she endured beatings. Uh, there was an attempted assassination. In one uh, instance, people were trying to take her life simply because she was attempting to advocate for Black people. You know, 1963 was a pivotal moment for her, a painful moment, a turning point in many ways, because that's the year that she experienced a brutal beating in Winona, Mississippi. She was with activists. You know, they had been traveling, you know, coming back from a, a workshop, again, doing the work that was so important to her. And uh, she was arrested along with several activists brutally beaten, um, assaulted in a, a jail cell. And it left her uh, certainly physically harmed, but, but even more so, I think, emotionally, psychologically. It was something that 
that really, I think, uh, changed her. And that was just an example of the kinds of experiences she had, lots of uh, violence and intimidation simply because she wanted Black people to exercise their constitutional rights as as citizens of the U.S. Was that the moment where she was not only beaten by prison guards and police officers, but also by prisoners? Like they employed prisoners who were were there and Black prisoners to actually beat her. Right, exactly. And that was, I think, you know, I mentioned it as just being a a pivotal moment for her because it, it certainly was one thing for her to experience violence at the hands of white supremacists. And, you know, by then she had experienced it enough that it wasn't surprising, but to be in a prison cell and to be beaten, not just by guards, but by prisoners. I mean, of course, we have to understand the, the power dynamics in the space. Um, and and clearly, you know, I, I think one could argue that even the prisoners who were who were actively participating probably did not imagine that they had a choice given the the context, right? I mean, this was an act of violence that was being perpetrated by white prison guards. And so to involve other prisoners certainly added to the the harm and the the pain of the experience. But I think collectively it it helped. I think when readers encounter this moment in the book, it, it, it becomes clear how state-sanctioned violence operates. Hamer also endured uh, sexual violence, right? And she didn't immediately talk about it because there were so many aspects of that experience that she struggled with, uh, even months, even years later. And so bit by bit, she would open up and and share all that she had endured in order to help others, in order to, to help others see, just have a glimpse of what Black people Uh, were facing in this period. Yeah, I should have clarified that when she was in prison and the prisoners were taking part in the beating. And I think she talked about this during her congressional testimony, which happened, you know, a few years later, that that they were made to do this by the guards. Like they didn't proactively, the the, the black prisoners didn't proactively beat her. They were made to do this because they were being coerced and, you know, terrorized as well. Right. Right. There was also another pivotal moment of violence that, you know, I think makes her strength and her activism so remarkable. And that was when she went to have a small fibroid removed from her uterus. And, you know, because she wanted to have children or more children. What ended up happening there? This is interesting because this took place before she joined the movement. Uh, So this is 1961. Hamer you know, like so many other Black women uh, during this period, went to see the doctor. At the time, she was hospitalized because she had to remove a small uterine tumor. This was a non-cancerous small uterine tumor. And without her knowledge or consent, the white doctor who was conducting the surgery made the decision to remove Hamer's uterus, did not tell her. And, and what is so shocking about the experience is that he, he didn't even tell her immediately after it took place what is so painful and violent in addition to what had already taken place is that Hamer found out about it through gossip. So as I explained in the book, she returns home, she's recovering, she's on the plantation and then begins to hear the whispers because the doctor had a relative who was on a plantation. So he had already shared what he had done. And that's the first time that Hamer finds out, you know, through the Whisper Network that something had taken place that, of, that of course, she had not sanctioned 
she goes to the doctor and she confronts him and, and simply says, you know, why did you do this to me? He doesn't respond. And as I explained in the book, he didn't have to respond, right? Because this is the Jim Crow South. This is, uh, you know, Hamer's experience was not unique. So many Black and brown women um, in this period were experiencing this. Uh, and particularly in the state of Mississippi, it was a violent act. And the fact that she could do nothing about it in the moment, I think, um, you know, as readers engage, you know, the book, I think it'll, it'll be clear to them just how traumatic that experience was. What is powerful, though, I think, in Hamer's story is that she tried to do something about it. You know, she confronted the doctor, did not get an answer. There was nothing she could go, you know, there was one she could go to to file a complaint and, you know, to hope that, you know, someone would do anything about it. But she decided that she was going to be vocal about it. She decided that she was going to speak freely about what she endured, but what other Black and poor women were experiencing. And so that became part of her mission as a civil rights activist. She would talk about the painful experience that took place in 61 and and use that as a way to mobilize people around the issue of state-sanctioned violence uh, through this particular context of medical violence. Right. You could see the beginnings of her activism and her activist voice in the way that she confronted the doctor and wouldn't be quiet about this, you know, forced violence sterilization. Right. And, you know, even though that happened one year before she went to the SNCC meeting, you could see, you could see, that, you know, she was gaining her voice. And the, one of the things that I like about the book is that you draw parallels between the things that happen now, like for instance, with Sandra Bland dying at the hands of the police or, you know, in police custody and the things that happened with Hamer back then? Well, you know, I wanted the book to really resonate with people. And and I'm not suggesting that a traditional biography could not resonate. But I think uh, for me, it was about connecting past and present. But even more specifically, the, the reason I wrote the book was because I wanted people to understand that Hamer's ideas, certainly her political strategies, her activism, that they are relevant, that they are salient, you know, that that we can look to Hamer and leave with something tangible as we try to figure out how to address a range of problems in our society today. Of course, you know, the 1960s it's not, you know, the, the present moment. However, what is clear in the book is that there are so many parallels. What is clear is that we're still facing many of the challenges that Hamer endured, including voter suppression, including state-sanctioned violence, economic injustice, and the list goes on. And these are things that she tried to address in her lifetime. And I think there's so many valuable lessons there. So part of drawing the connection and, and placing these contemporary scenes to juxtapose with what Hamer was experiencing in the 60s was an effort to help people see how relevant her ideas and her activism continue to be in this particular moment. And, you know, one of the things that I found remarkable about her story was the fact that, you know, she was so ahead of her time in, in the ideas that she was talking about. And particularly for me, she didn't use the word misogynoir, but what she described was misogynoir, you know, that unique experience that Black women have, the intersection of bias on, you know, along gender lines and race and class, right? I mean, that's essentially mm -hmm. misogynoir. And, and, you know, she didn't, again, she didn't use that word, but she was calling it out. And she was also calling right. out the differences in white feminism, mm -hmm. white feminism being exclusionary, 
then. And, you know, and I think that really, really put her ahead of her time. Absolutely. Uh, And in fact, as you brought that up, it made me think immediately about, you know, the fact that she didn't call herself a feminist and the fact that she resisted the label. Yet, as I explained in the book, she ended up contributing so much to feminist politics, even as she, you know, maintained distance to the term. Ultimately, she was committed to women's empowerment. She was committed to, you know, challenging patriarchy. She wanted to ensure that women would have a range of opportunities uh, in the public sphere, um, in the political realm, like all these things were important to her. And so even though she resisted a label, her actions uh, spoke louder than words, right? And, you know, through her deeds, she demonstrated her commitment to women's empowerment. And, you know, and, and through her ideas, we see the vision of intersectionality, right? Another term that shows up much later but is truly uh, connected to Hamer's story and the way that she certainly envisioned uh, the world before her, the way that she understood, you know, her own experiences, you know, as a Black woman, you know, as a, as a working poor Black woman, as a disabled Black woman. I think all of these are connected. So once again, through her story, we, we have a sense of, you know, the, the, the sort of ideological uh, groundwork, so to speak, that sets the stage for this contemporary moment where we can talk about intersectionality, you know, through Kimberly Crenshaw's work and we could talk about and we could talk about feminist politics, though clearly there is still a lot of tension, I think, depending on who you ask. You know, she also said that no movement was complete, no political movement was complete without Black women, which is something that could have been said this year or last year, right? Again, mm-hmm. that's something that's very modern sentiment. And I was also thinking about the fact that people may not know that she also ran for Congress. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, ahead of her time. Absolutely. She actually ran for office a total of three times and, uh, you know, was not successful. But, in, you know, there was an incident, there was a one moment where someone questioned her and said, you know, why are you running? It's it's, it's kind of obvious that you're probably not going to win, given uh, the fact that you don't have as many you know, resources, material resources and, and other things. And she said that it's not about winning. Right. It's, it's not. I mean, she, she wanted to win. Clearly, no one jumps into a race with the expectation that they would lose. I mean, you, you want to win. But she said it's not about that. It was about sending a message. It was about sending a message to certainly to black people that they, too, could um, follow in her footsteps. They, too, could serve public office, uh, you know, to send a message to other Black women, to empower them, to consider running for office. So so absolutely ahead of her time, always thinking about how she could utilize her gifts and talents to make the world a better place. And running for office was one of those things that she held dear because she wanted to dismantle Jim Crow. She wanted to have an opportunity to have certainly access, not solely for herself, but to be at the table, so to speak, right? To be able to influence a policy that would help the lives of those around her, that would improve the lives of Black people in Mississippi, certainly, but, you know, across the nation. I think this is, you know, what Hamer was committed to, always a life of service. I think the full circle moment for me was at the DNC, the 2020 DNC, when when now, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris mentioned Hamer's name and she said something like, you know, we're not often taught their stories, but as Americans, we all stand on their shoulders. You know, and I think about, you know, if Hamer could see her name being invoked at that moment, it would have been so meaningful to her. I think so. Um, you know, I remember listening to this speech and, and being so moved and thinking of, of course, of Hamer and wondering what she would think. I think, you know, she 
would have been excited and, and you know, proud to, to see a Black woman in, in this particular moment. At the same time, you know, as I explained in the book, uh, she would have been critical too, you know. Hamer did not hold back when it came to talking about public officials and when it came to talking about, you know, leaders in the movement. She always, you know, came with a critical lens, uh, not solely to, you know, to be critical for the sake of being critical, but to simply say, this is great. Now that you have this position, you occupy this, you know, this important position, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do to improve the lives of Black people, to ensure that things are better uh, now that you are at the, the table, now that you occupy that seat, you know? And so I think she certainly would have celebrated, but um, like so many activists would have been saying, okay, this is wonderful. What's next? And what are the next steps to ensure that we move forward and that we, you know, move beyond symbol and we move to actual policy changes that will make a difference? So what do you think Hamer's enduring message is to, to us right now? Well, I think it goes back to the title of the book. Um, and this is something I was thinking about as I was writing and trying to figure out, you know, what's the best title. This, you know, Until I'm Free comes from several speeches. Hamer would repeat it often, but she would say, until I am free, you are not free either. And that to me uh, is such a powerful statement. It's one that we often repeat, but when you reflect on it, it, it helps us imagine that we are all connected. You know, the oppression of one group impacts the lives of so many others. And I think if we take this approach, if we have this vision of the world where we see our lives, our fates, you know, our futures connected to other people, it would, I think, cause us to move differently. It would cause us to certainly be concerned, a lot more concerned about what's taking place around us. And I think it would push us to be thinking about human rights broadly, be thinking about how to ensure that we resist, that we work to dismantle systems of oppression, and that we never take, uh, you know, this sort of passive approach to imagine, okay, well, if it doesn't bother me, then I don't have to worry about it. No, we have to be concerned with the next person, even if it's not our story, right? And so I think her message to America would be this idea that we have to work together, regardless of the differences um, in our background, regardless of race, ethnicity, you know, ability, sexuality. Despite all of our differences, we have to come together and we have to build this inclusive democracy that would allow for all of us to not only exist, but to thrive. I think that's the message to America. Well, well, Dr. Keisha Blaine, thank you so much for writing this book and, and thank you for, you know, for bringing, you know, her story back to the attention of, you know, Americans. I hope everyone picks up a copy of this because I, I think you'll, you'll, you know, learn something obviously, and hopefully you'll be inspired. Um, so thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for having me. 